Dear Father in heaven, we want to thank you for what a blessed camp meeting we've had. There have been so many things to learn and so much uh, to gain in association and fellowship. We're coming to the end of our class now and even the end of the seminars for this camp meeting. And Lord, we pray that this will be the last camp meeting we have. We are praying that Jesus will come soon. Lord, we know that's not going to happen unless you are able to do the work in our hearts and you are fully capable, but the problem is with us. We pray that you will help us in our class time today as we seek to learn from you. May your Holy Spirit be in charge of what's done here. We're pleading for the return of the latter rain, Father. May that indeed be the reality and may this be part of that experience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God's wanting to lead us forward. And today we're going to work really hard and move right ahead. I certainly hope you've been praying. Because we're looking for God to give us wisdom and understanding. We've learned a lot during this week. And probably not a single one of you have learned as much as I have. There's nothing quite like preparing a class. And the more I prepare, the more I know I need to learn. And the more I wish I did understand. And it also is true that I wish I'd been uh, better prepared over the last 40 years. That's another story for another time and another place. But uh, I want you to know that God is leading us and he is trying to help us. And God wants to finish his work. Today I uh, do not uh, want to spend time going over past ground except for one place that we left something undone. There's a lot we've left undone, but there's one piece I wanted to bring up. It may be a little bit controversial in a sense, but I don't want it to be. I want it to be um, just a chance for us to kind of close a door and then just leave the rest with the Lord on that particular part. I don't have all the answers on this, but I had a question that was raised a couple of days ago, and um, I indicated my thinking in regard to that, and I knew that there was a reason why I was thinking that, but I couldn't put my hand on it, but I got my, uh, my finger on that place, and I wanted to share it with you. We talked a little bit about Uriah Smith, and I want to just close the door on the topic for right now, not close the door on Uriah Smith. Uriah Smith's in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, as all of us are. Uh, but he rests in his grave, and he was a man who did so much for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I do want to share a couple of things that uh, Daniels, I mean, not Daniels, that Daniels does share, but that uh, we get from the from author Duffield as he did some research in regard to this. And I just want to share a couple of pieces with you. And I'm not going to spend any time, I'm not going to discuss it, because this is not the focal point today, and I just wanted to be able to touch base on that real quick. Two slides that I want to share with you. The first one is up on the screen, and it says A.G. Daniels to W.C. White, April 14, 1902. Manuscripts and Memories of Minneapolis, page 318 and page 321. U.F. Durand writes in his biography of Uriah Smith, it is obvious that Uriah Smith's views on righteousness by faith and the law in Galatians changed not one whit through his lifetime. 
His tearful promise to Ellen White in 1891 proved to be more than he could keep. Yet he did not withdraw from church fellowship as did Jones and Wagner, but remained as one of the loyal opposition on this point. Um, yours in the blessed hope, Uriah Smith. Although Duran's work offers an invaluable resource in the depiction of the enormous contribution pioneer Uriah Smith brought to the Adventist Church, his biases in favor of Smith and sometimes derogatory depiction of Jones and Wagner led him to make some rather outlandish conclusions. While we would not call into question Uriah's eternal, Uriah Smith's eternal destiny, the concept that one can have loyal opposition to the loud cry message without lasting consequences has left us as a people reluctant to acknowledge the mistakes of the past and blind to the cause of Christ's long delay. A.G. Daniels, um, I think that is just what I just read. Yep, there we go. I do want to uh, read what um, Duffield said just before this and the reason for that quotation from, uh, from the other author. He said, in February of 1902, Uriah Smith, reinstated editor of the Review, made it obvious that old controversies had not yet been laid to rest and unbelief was still being directed toward the Minneapolis message. Smith ran a three-part series in the Review by W.M. Brickey, which once again brought into question the positions of Jones and Wagner on the Law and Galatians and the Covenants. Key components of the 1888 message which Ellen White had reported. A.G. Daniels supported. I'm thank you. Thank you. A.G. Daniels, General Conference President, declared to W.C. White that the articles were as crooked and as unsound as they could be and that they were an open and vicious attack on the message of righteousness by faith presented at Minneapolis. He could not understand how Smith could proclaim his unbounded confidence in the spirit of prophecy and reject the Minneapolis message at the same time. Yet it wasn't just Smith that Daniels was concerned about, but the whole brood of old covenant men who were continually raising doubts and unbelief regarding the message that came at the Minneapolis meeting. This again was the general conference president who was the longest um, seated general conference president uh, who made the statement to W.C. White. I'll let you come to your own conclusions and the bottom line is that's why I said I don't know because I don't know that anybody does know what actually happened after 1902 and what happened along that line. Does it really matter? No, not in this sense. For Uriah Smith, that's between him and God. The real issue is you can see the struggle that was going on in the church even continually and the continued struggle that even we face today. And I'm not really here to get into that struggle. We have been looking back at the history. I'm not ready yet to talk about what happened from the time of A.G. Daniels up until to our own. The responsibility that you and I have today is to be our own students in the Word of God. You and I must be our own students in the spirit of prophecy. You and I are not going to be able to come to the Lord Jesus and say, it was so-and-so that caused me to not be here. 
You and I must ourselves be in tune with our Lord Jesus Christ. As we talked yesterday about Prescott's Armadale sermon, you and I must be walking daily with Jesus Christ. You and I must be the students in the Word of God that will lead us to have a daily connection with Jesus. I want to spend some time talking a little bit, picking up from where we left off, and then moving through and trying to understand about Christ, our righteousness. I remind you of the principles for identifying the 1888 message that we talked about earlier, that we need to go to the original sources primarily and as much as possible. And the primary primary resources for us are the Bible. And the good news is, according to a survey that was done in the United States, there are 4.4 Bibles in every home. So I suspect you have at least one in yours. The spirit of prophecy. You and I are tremendously blessed to have access to the spirit of prophecy today. And not just the printed volume in the sense of being able to buy a, a book at the ABC, good as that is. But you and I can hold in our, in our hand all of the writings of Ellen White and have access to them. As a matter of fact, we have so much access that we almost dismiss that access. And then also to go back to the writings and sermons of A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner themselves. And I included W.W. Prescott in that because there's a lot of work that he did. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we look at Prescott is because Prescott lived in Australia for a while. And he also served as a secretary to Ellen White. He did a lot of editing work with Ellen White. And that's why the Armadale sermons are so valuable to us. Because Ellen White was there, she heard what he was saying, and supported what he said. Not only that, he was in connection with what Ellen White was doing at that time. They were going back and forth in relationship to these things. And went with what W.W. W. Prescott said, he would certainly have been corrected by Ellen White. And instead of being corrected, she was so tremendously supportive of what he had to say. And not only was she supportive of him, but especially of A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. Again, we're trying to understand what was this message that was given in 1888? What was that Christ our righteousness message that we need to know for today? The message that Ellen White says was a very precious message. What was the the, the content of that message? And today we're going to try to delve into that in the time that we have. I've also already talked to you about caution in relationship to history books and the fact that we need to be careful about their analysis of original sources. There are questions that are raised where we need to tread very carefully. Today I'm going to tread carefully. We may be able to have some time to get into a few of the key issues, and that's where I'm headed right now. But I want you to know that I come here with fear and trembling. Because this is the point at where dealing with a history is challenging enough. Trying to get into those points of theology is difficult for us because we human beings have all kinds of ways of looking at things. 
That's why we must be students and not take just a little word here and a little word there or a paragraph here and a paragraph there or a Bible verse here and a Bible verse there. We must put them all together to be able to see what's being spoken of so that we don't go down any of those roads we talked about earlier, that fanaticism does not come in and that we do not turn our back on truth just because somebody else suggests that it is truth or it isn't truth. So we're going to go into the material that we started with yesterday. Did I actually get into it? The study guide, yes. And go into the study guide. And I've put some of the things on the screen here. We're going to try to summarize those materials and, uh, and, and get into it. I hope you will read that study guide. I want to remind you, for those that are new today and or at least weren't here yesterday... Uh, that you will be able to have some understanding of what the uh, message is all about here that we're talking about. You need to understand who it was that uh, the study guide was prepared for. It was prepared for the Michigan Conference ministers who got together at Camp Asabel in January. Elder uh, Mitchiff asked him to prepare this for us, recognizing that there are challenges along the way in terms of understanding this and knowing that Elder Waleen, Dr. Waleen, has been a student of this message and student of 1888 and has written himself a dissertation uh, uh, related to uh, this subject. And he shared some information with us, and that's what I'm sharing with you today. I have given it to you in printed form for you to read on your own, I'm going to bring out the highlights. To me, the two main highlights come at the end when we look at two items, especially written by A.T. Jones and uh, E.J. Wagner. But the materials we're looking at are from Ellen White, the scriptures, and these sources. First of all, in the summary of the message in 1888 materials coming from pages 1042 to 1054, those are not years, those are pages, all right, so that you understand that. Ellen White made the statement regarding the message of the messengers and said that the message of the messengers is the Laodicean, uh, is the message to the Laodicean church. You and I need to look at that message much more carefully than we have in the past. And then she goes on, and here are some of the points that she brings out in relationship to this message. I will move fairly quickly through this. I'm looking at, uh, you can see the reference up there. Can, can you read that in the back? Okay, it's tough, but it's, uh, can you at least read, where's my thing here? Can you at least read this part here? That's the page numbers, which is uh, from uh, volume three of Selected Messages, pages 168 to 170, which is in your material in its entirety. So if you get to that point, you'll be able to find and follow it. Uh, along with that, please uh, just kind of listen closely. I'm sorry for the smaller print, but I wanted to try to get it on that, that screen, and that's my problem. I also know you have it in front of you, and I am going in order that it's found there in your material. All right? Somebody help me with the first page of that material where we're at. Okay, page five? Okay, is where this is? Okay, make sure, page eight. All right, somebody prove it to me so I agree with you. Okay, all right, page eight, and yeah, I think that's correct, okay? Page eight. 
All right, now I will be skipping down because remember I'm summarizing, so you'll have to kind of just try to figure out how to follow me. Sorry, I can't do better than that today. First of all, part of the uh, message summary is that uh, Ellen White talks about justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ in relationship to the law, old light placed in connection with the third angel's message where it should be. In other words, the big, one of the big arguments that was coming from those that were opposed to the messages that Jones and Wagner were sharing had to do with the issue of the law. The law had been the standard for the Seventh-day Adventist church tacking on uh, Jesus along the way. And Ellen White was saying that the messages that Jones and Wagner are bringing to us is putting justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ in relationship to the law where it ought to be. We'll get a little bit further into this now as she kind of fleshes that out. She speaks of it and saying its burden, that is the message, is for God's end-time people who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, Revelation 14, 12, and are thus prepared for the second advent, and it's not Adventists, it's not the second Adventist, it's the second advent, that's spoken of in Revelation 14, verse 14. So she says the burden is, of the message is for God's people to be able to get the message of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus in the right place, which will prepare them for the return of Christ. Then she speaks of the law, and she says that the law is the sin detector. Don't you like that? And she didn't even know about uh, radiation detectors and those kinds of things in those days. But she speaks of it as the law, uh, that the law is the sin detector. And then she says, and I'm quoting now, the sinner is constantly being withdrawn to Jesus by the wonderful manifestation of his love in that he humiliated himself to die a shameful death upon the cross. What a study this is. Angels, look into this wonderful mystery. Now, I don't know that I'm going to have time to be able to dig into the depths of this, but that's going to be probably your responsibility to continue to get into this. But when she starts speaking of uh, the sinner is being drawn by Jesus to Jesus by the wonderful manifestation of his love in that he humiliated himself to die a shameful death on the cross, Sometimes that humiliation, we think, is, well, he died on the cross. And, uh, you know, that was a humiliating experience. He came and he died on that cross. I mean, who wants to be basically naked up there on the cross? That's a humiliation. That's not the humiliation she's talking about. The humiliation she's talking about is far greater than that. And if I can, I'll introduce to you to what Ellen White, Jones and Wagner and Prescott we're trying to help us to understand in terms of just what depth Christ came to in order to be able to save us. Not just to save us, but to empower us to be able to live for Jesus Christ. Going on farther, Ellen White said, Man, fallen, deceived by Satan, taking Satan's side of the question, can be conformed to the image of the Son of the Infinite God. I don't know if you get all of that. It's in your notes, and I can't tell you exactly where. But she says, man, fallen, deceived by Satan, taking Satan's side of the question, 
can be conformed to the image of the Son of the infinite God. Uh, There's so much there. We'll get into it a little bit farther. That man shall be like him. That because of the righteousness of Christ given to man, God will love man. Fallen but redeemed, even as he loved his son. Read it, she says, right out of the living oracles. Part of the challenge that we have is that we've not been reading it right out of the living oracles. We've not been seeing that the message is clearly there in the scriptures. The problem is, including me, myself, we've had it staring us in the face, but we've tried to make excuses for it as being something other than what it obviously says. But when we take the Bible for what it says, we don't get into trouble. It's the same principle that we apply when we study about the Sabbath. When you and I study about the Sabbath, we believe that when it says the seventh day is the Sabbath and that nowhere in the scripture does it speak about Sunday and the Sabbath being changed, that therefore the Bible Sabbath is the seventh day Saturday, right? Am I making my point clear? Okay. So if we will just take the scriptures and allow the scriptures to say what they say, I'm not talking about an isolated Bible verse here and there. You can teach anything you want to out of the scriptures if you will isolate Bible verses. But if you will take them all and you compare scripture with scripture like we've been taught to do, it will be clear. She goes on and she says, The divine picture of Christ must be kept before the people, clothed in the attributes of deities. Anybody know where we are? Okay, what page are we on now? We're still on eight? Fourth paragraph down, in case you're trying to figure out where we are. Thank you. The divine picture of Christ must be kept before the people, clothed in the attributes of deity, shrouded in the glories of deity, and in the likeness of the infinite God. Creature, merit, sinks into insignificance. I want you to begin to pick up here what... The message is that they were trying to share. I've got to keep this where I can find it. And that is that there is no merit in us human beings. The problem that the Seventh-day Adventist Church had, and the reason that there was this discussion going on, is because people like Uriah Smith and Olson, Olson was kind of walking the fence a little bit, and that's just my term of it, but the others like Dan Jones and, and others that were so opposed to the message of Jones and Wagner and Ellen White, the issue was that they felt that there was value in the merit of us human beings. Why did Uriah Smith write an article entitled, to, uh, entitled Our Righteousness? Because he was trying to make a point in contradistinction to what Jones and Wagner were saying when they said, Christ is our righteousness. And they were making that point because they felt that there was still value in what you and I can do. But what the message is that Christ was trying to bring to his people, and Ellen White had been teaching before that and continued to support and teach herself until the day she died, was that there is no merit in what you and I can do. That we get salvation because of Jesus Christ. This is not Jesus 
fluffy Jesus only that comes out from some movements that are out there both in the church and out of the church. It is not that kind of a message. It is a message that is filled with the power of Jesus Christ to be able to do what the other preachers were trying to say that needed to be happened. But they were determined to believe that it came just with some of Christ's power and our power mixed in. That needs to become clearer as we go ahead. The divine picture of Christ, uh, which uh, I just read about, I want to continue on uh, from that, uh, must be kept before the people, she said. And then she said, by beholding, man can but admire and become more attracted to him. The more we look at Christ, the more attracted we become to him. When we understand what the Bible really teaches about him, desirous to be like Jesus until he assimilates to his image and has the mind of Christ. Like Enoch, she says, he walks with God. And when we walk with God, like Enoch, what did it lead to? It led to translation, correct? The experience of Enoch, we've known that, we've preached that for years. The experience of Enoch was the example for us of those who will be ready for translation. The experience of Moses was the experience of those who would be, uh, that would be, die, would die and be buried and rest in the grave until Jesus comes. She ties the experience of what Christ is trying to teach us here as being an experience like Enoch's. His mind, the individual who is following with Christ, is full of the thoughts of Jesus. He is his best friend. Just not a casual relationship. This is an Enoch-type relationship we're talking about. Jesus wants us to have the experience of Enoch. Do you get that? You know why I said that? Because I'm trying to convince myself of that. I'm trying to understand what that means. That's what he's trying to tell us. Jesus is trying to communicate this to us. And he's got messengers to bring that. Continuing on, she says... Study Christ, study his character, feature by feature. He is our pattern that we are required to copy in our lives and characters. Else we will fail to represent Jesus, but present to the world a spurious copy. She was contrasting not the people outside of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but the people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church who were trying to be their own source of righteousness. Yes, connected with Christ, but not availing themselves of daily fullness of the power of Jesus that Jesus wanted to communicate to them, believing that they had something to contribute to their salvation. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation. Now, some of you are saying, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, I mean, what does that translate to? We're not done yet. So let's keep going. Did I change that? No. Um... Yes, please, take your Bibles, and let's go to Romans chapter 1. I brought my Bible in here. I know it. Thank you. <laughs> You're just like my secretary, my wife. It's right there. <laughs> okay, Ro Romans chapter 1. Let's go to the Bible and be reminded of this. Now, this is, we can't be exhaustive in our search here, but I do want to be clear. Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read 16 to 19. Now I have to think where I'm at. 
All right, verse 16. Someone read verse 16 for me, please. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Someone else, verse 17, please. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, which also live and be. 18, please. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And 19, someone else. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So Paul is speaking of here, and this so well-known verse among Christians, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith but we've underestimated the power and the value of faith. When we get to the end of our discussion today, that will get clearer for us. Ellen White goes on and she says, We felt deeply and solemnly grateful to God to see Christ in the living oracles and to represent Him to the world, but not in words merely. You catch that? We were grateful to see it in the Bible but to realize it's not just words merely, but that it is Christ living in us, the work that he wants to do in us that was bringing joy out of their deep and solemnly, uh, their, their being deeply and solemnly grateful to God. She went on to say, to see the scripture requirements that all who claim to be followers of Christ are under obligation to walk in his footsteps, to be imbued with his spirit, and thus to present to the world Jesus Christ. She goes on and says, A great deal deeper study is required of us in searching the scriptures. Placing the righteousness of Christ in the law distinctly reveals God in his true character and reveals the law as holy, just, and good, glorious indeed when seen in its true character. You can understand that with the confusion that was out there, sorry that I keep tickling your foot here with this, but she was trying to help keep that perspective, not just trying to, but the people that were so ingrained in the law and only tacking on Jesus, she was trying to help that, them to see the balance that you and I need to have in relationship to the law and to Jesus. And what, where we have gotten ourselves in trouble is that we see the law there, then we think about the value of it being able to... Um, so she was trying to keep that balance and so that people were not trying to, you know, teach people about the Sabbath and that they need to be obedient to the law and that, uh, and that was because of their love for Jesus, just trying to teach that without realizing that Jesus has real power to be able to deal with that. And uh, that's one of the reasons that many people fail is because they have not accessed the true power that's available in Jesus Christ. All right, I'll keep going so that it gets clearer here. She goes on and says, a great deal deeper studies. I said all that already. All right, let's keep going. Um, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20, verses 8, 1 to 8. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. 
Dr. Wallin took us to this passage because he wanted us to be able to see how Jesus had to interact with the Pharisees and the challenges he received in dealing with the Pharisees and reminding us that we still can be Pharisees today and we can have the same kinds of challenges. So let's read chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read the first two chapters, then I want someone to read the uh, two chapters, verses, then I want someone else to read verses 3 and 4. Now it happened in one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple, and preached the gospel that the chief priests and scribes, together with the elders, confronted him, and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? Someone read verse 3 and 4, please. But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Sound like a question? Hold on just a second. Sound like a question worthy of considering? Do you think that maybe that same question was being answered in 1888? Is this message, is this author speaking from heaven or from their own background and from men? That was exactly what was being said back then. And they considered that this message was not from God, therefore it was from men. So Jesus was dealing with it. And I heard somebody about to read 5. Go on to 5 and 6, please. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So what was their solution to it? It was verse 7. They answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what danger is there for us in walking the fence? If Jesus is giving us a message, and that message is clearly being portrayed in the Scriptures and the spirit of prophecy, and those authors who come along and bring that message, those messengers who bring that message, and they're bringing it, is it possible we might be caught in the trap of asking ourselves, is this message from heaven or is it from men? And that's the problem that we've been encountering. That's the challenge we have. So let's keep going as we see this. Was John the Baptist's message from heaven or men? Was Matt Wagner's message from heaven or men? What was the result of the Pharisees? What happened to them? They lost salvation. They nailed Jesus to the cross. You and I have the potential of doing exactly that if we're not in tune with Christ. What are considered safe attitudes today towards Jones and Wagner? You might want to think that thing through. And I'm going to tell you, and I wish I had time to go into my own journey, but it's probably a good thing that we don't, because we really want the Bible's information here. Our responsibility is like the Bereans. We must carefully study for ourselves. In Revelation chapter 14, please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 14. I want you to look at chapter 14, and we're going to ask a few questions about it. Now, in the interest of time, I do not have time to read all of chapter 14. But if you're looking at chapter 14, notice that on the screen, if you can read that, I'm back there, Revelation 14, there are three sections that are identified on the screen. The first one is verses 1 through 5. The second is verses 6 through 13. And the last is verses 14 through 20. We know what 6 through 13 is. We know that that has to do with the uh, three angels' messages, exactly. 
What is chapter 14, verses 1 through 5 talking about? Okay, it's talking about the 144,000. And the 144,000 are identified in chapter 13, coming right after chapter, I mean chapter 14, coming right after chapter 13, as those who are victorious after the beast and his image. So by accepting the message of the three angels, they keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus and are prepared for the second advent. Because we find in verses 6 through 13 are those three angels' messages. Those three angels' messages teach us to keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus, and thereby they are prepared for what follows. What follows in verses 14 through 20 is the return of Jesus Christ. Do you see the progression? You with me? 144,000, they get the victory over the beast in his image. The three angels' messages are the messages that particularly prepare them for the relationship that they need in order to be ready when Jesus comes, concluding that the people that are ready are the ones who keep the commandments of Jesus, commandments and have the faith of Jesus. Revelation 14, verse 12, was the burden of the 1888 message. And well should it be. It is right there in the three angels' messages. The first and the second angels' messages historically had already been preached. By the time we got to 1888, there was only one message left to be preached. And that was the message that Jones and Wagner were preaching together with Ellen White and then others that joined them and continued to do that. The reason it was the burden of the message is because it shows the connection between the everlasting gospel in chapter 14, verse uh, 6 and 7 in the first angel's message, and it shows the connection of, the, of that message together with the third angel's message. This third angel's message concludes with the people of God reflecting the character of Jesus. How is that even possible for them to reflect the image of Jesus and the character of Jesus? That is the basic question that we're seeking to have answered. How is that even possible? If it is possible, then Jesus must have given us an answer. And his answer is the faith of Jesus. By accepting the everlasting gospel, we receive Christ's righteousness and become obedient to his commandments. This is what Ellen White said. This is what Jones said. This is what Wagner said. This is what Prescott said and others. This is what was trying to be communicated from heaven, that the everlasting gospel tells us we receive Christ's righteousness and become obedient to his commandments. Did you notice the progression of that statement? Look at it carefully if you can see it on the screen. By accepting the gospel, we receive... Strength to be obedient. No, we receive Christ's righteousness and become obedient to his commandments. There is huge theology in this, and it is indeed what the gospel is, says it is. It's good news. All right, let's keep going. If we speak of a summary from Ellen White, uh, the summary from Ellen White continuing now, this time from a different section. So there's a different section in your material. It's from 1888 materials, pages 1336 to 1341. Are you still with me? Okay. And it is on page number nine. Terrific. Thank you. And so the message uh, that uh, shared there, zeroing in on some of the key points, that 
statement we've repeated several times in our class, the most precious message brought to his people, God's people, through Jones and Wagner. And she points out that it was to be brought more prominently before the world and that it was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior. The message was to present justification through faith in the surety. Justification through faith in Christ, who is our surety. Don't you like that word? It's not maybe, but it's sure. It's positive. It will happen. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which was made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. It was made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God because they received the righteousness of Christ. Still with me? You notice the order again. It's always Christ first, and then everything else follows along with it. Continuing on, they needed to have their eyes directed to his divine person, his merits, and his changeless love. All power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men, imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended by the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. Ellen White, Jones and Wagner, Prescott, etc. were helping us to understand that the latter reign had begun. This is the message of centering on Christ, who is the surety that justification by faith is in Jesus Christ by surrendering to him, receiving his righteousness, and through his righteousness we become obedient to God's commandments. It is the loud voice that is attended by the outpouring of His Spirit in large measure. It's the final work. I want to remind you of the connection with the end of time events that were going on in their day and the connection with the time even today. God is ready to finish His work. Well, I think you want to stay with me just a little <laughs> bit longer. I am so glad you asked that question. Here we go. Let's keep going. Continuing in the 1888 materials there, she speaks of the sanctuary in heaven. I'd like you to take that page now, find it in your materials, and um, I'm going to find it in mine. All right, now I am with, where am I? One from the 1888 materials. Okay, all right, it's, the, uh, it's number three, it's section number three, all right? It's not on the same layout as yours, but I'm using mine, otherwise I'll never find it. And uh, it begins, this is number three, Inspired Summaries of the 1880 Message Part 2. You see that? All there with me? All right. The, the first paragraph of that section <clears throat> starts out, The Lord in His great mercy. With me still? I did already. So now to the second paragraph. Just make sure we're all together. The uplifted Savior is to appear in His efficacious work as the Lamb slain. 
sitting upon the throne to dispense the priceless covenant blessings, the benefits he died to purchase for every soul who should believe on him. John could not express that love in words, and it was too deep and too broad. He calls upon the human family to behold it. Christ is pleading for the church in the heavenly courts above. Where's that? It's the sanctuary, right? So we've got the sanctuary imagery in here. This message brings the sanctuary into its fullest understanding for us what Christ is trying to teach us about our circumstances. And so she goes on and she says, Christ is pleading for us in the church in the heavenly courts above, for the church in the heavenly courts above, pleading for those for whom he paid the redemption price of his own lifeblood. Centuries, ages can never diminish the efficacy of his, this atoning sacrifice. This message of the gospel of his grace was to be given to the church in a clear and distinct lines that the world should no longer say, Seventh-day Adventists talk the law, the law, but do not preach or believe Christ. Remember I told you that the Armadale sermons that was one of the reactions of the community in Melbourne, Australia, that suburb Armadale, is that they had been, they had seen great controversy, but they'd heard about Adventists and they hadn't gotten the connection of the truth with Christ. But when Prescott preached, they came and heard him preach, he preached Christ and he wove in there some of these other things. And they said, well, he's preaching Christ and he's preaching Christ better than our preachers preach Christ. And then at the same time, they said, well, certainly Christ, if you want to walk with Christ, you've got to walk with, the, with him in the Sabbath, just like it says. And they started to pick up all that and were able to move ahead. She goes on, she, I wanted you to see the connection with the sanctuary. Then she says, never was there a time when the Lord would manifest his great grace, not his chosen ones more fully. Great. I'm sorry, I, I typed that wrong. Yeah. Anyway, his chosen ones more fully than in the last days when his law is made void. In other words, we need this now more than we ever did need it before. All right, now I want to go from these uh, three sections that are quotations from the inspired writings of Ellen White. And I want to go to A.T. Jones and I want to go to E.J. Wagner. Because if we want to understand what their message was, we need to go back to them as the primary sources. This is A.T. Jones and what he shares. So it's in your material, and I don't know what number page it's on. Page 13 now, thank you very much. And it should be a colored... So let's take a look at what A.T. Jones had to say under the title of the third angel's message. By the way, if you look at that article, you'll notice something about when it was actually, uh, I'm talking about reprinted, not printed originally, but printed. When was it? So it's been printed more recently as a reprint so that we would be able to take a look at it and see it. I wish I could take the time to get into it. I will a little bit, but here I'm going to hit some of the highlights to keep us on schedule. Here's what... Um, this is an article, and you can get it by going into the 1888 
uh, message materials. I believe it's there. Um, is it there? I have to think about that. This came from the Admiral's Review, so just go back in the archives of the Admiral's Review. It was printed in 1988. It was the anniversary of 1888, so in 1988 they reprinted that article, and you can go back online and you can dig it out of the uh, Review and Herald articles from there. November 3rd is correct, okay? Good question. Here you can find it. All right, here we go. Listen to his sermon, his article here, which he would have done as a sermon. Are you in Christ? Not if you do not acknowledge yourselves erring, helpless, condemned sinners. That is what some of the brethren say they can't see. They say, I can't see how. If I am in Christ, I am not to acknowledge myself, I am to acknowledge myself a helpless, undone sinner. I thought if I was in Christ, then I could thank the Lord that I was good, sinless, entirely perfect, sanctified, and all that. Why, no, He is righteous. He is holy and never errs. And His holiness is imputed to you. It is, and that is given to you, He says. His faithfulness, His perfection is mine, but I am not that. Do you get the depth of the message? This is Christ, our righteousness. It is because Christ is righteous. You and I are not. That's why Uriah Smith would write an article that he would title, Our Righteousness. And here they're saying, it's not our righteousness. We've got nothing to give. We're not talking about our righteousness. It's Christ, our righteousness. Because we are in Christ, and Christ is the power that you and I need. Then he goes on. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have faith in uh, Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus. Question mark, he says. No, the have is not there. They keep the commandments of God and keep the faith of Jesus or have, or that, uh, that, and, and keep it. That is the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is the focal point, not something that we have. That is the genuine article. That is the faith which in him endured the test. That is the faith which met every fiery trial that Satan knows and all that power that Satan could rally. That faith endured the test. White raiment, then he speaks of a little further down. Is that the garment that is woven in the loom of heaven in which there is not one thread of human devising? Or I should say it is that garment which is uh, woven in the loom of heaven in which there is not one thread of human devising. He is trying to help us to understand that our righteousness is Christ's righteousness and there is nothing that we have to give to it. He was quoting Christ's object lessons, uh, lessons there. Alan White made that statement. He said, there is nothing in our, in, in our robe of righteousness. The Bible talks about the parable of the righteousness of Christ, the white robe of Christ that is placed upon us in the wedding feast parable. That's what, the, what happened there. It wasn't that he was told to go out and buy that garment and come back. He was the... The uh, person that came to the man who came to that wedding and failed to put on that garment had no excuse because the garment was given to him to put on. And that's not just a casual expression. 
It is the reality that we are accepting the righteousness of Christ that he gives to us. He continued on and said, and now we're going to start nudging just a little bit. How tall are we to be in character before we leave the world? this world? As tall as Christ. What is to be our stature? That of Christ. We are to be men reaching unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, folks, relax. Because if you don't have your, your seatbelt fastened, you need to. But this is clearly what Ellen White has said again and again and again. She confirmed what Jones was saying. She confirmed what Wagner's saying. Let's not get into the ideas of perfectionism and all those kinds of things. This is Christ, all right? It is Christ, because when we are surrendered to Christ, you and I are not going to stand before uh, the throne of God on our own. We never can. We never will. That's not the message. But the message is that Christ is perfect. Are you with me? Christ is perfect. All right, let's keep going. E.J. Wagner, Christ and the Law. So turn over to the next document, and you can see that. I really would love to just dig into this a whole lot more. But uh, if I can, I'm going to give you a chance to ask a few questions. Uh, before we get done here, I'm getting pretty close to being at the conclusion, so I hope we can uh, do that a little bit. And I'll also try to summarize a few things. So here we are. E.J. Wagner, Christ and the Law. E.J. Wagner says, But will there ever be any people on the earth who will have attained to that perfection of character? Indeed, there will be. Says the prophet, The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Zephaniah 3, verse 13. When the Lord comes, there will be a company, says Wagner, who will be found complete in him, having not their own righteousness, but that perfect righteousness of God, which comes by faith of Jesus Christ. To perfect this work in the hearts of individuals and to prepare such a company is the work of the third angel's message. That message, therefore, is not a mass of dry theories, but is a living, practical reality. I know that when you and I get to this, there's all kinds of things going through our minds. And the real struggle that we all have with this is, I'll never be that way. I'll never get to that point. It's not going to happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's exactly the point. But what you can't miss the point is that Jesus still has to be lived in his people. Jesus still has to be lived in his people on the other side of the close of probation. When Jesus has left the sanctuary in heaven, what is the whole sanctuary imagery about? The whole sanctuary imagery is that Jesus is in heaven. He's working out 
things for us. He's forgiving us. He is ministering to us. But what he's especially doing is he's preparing his people for his return because there's going to come a day when probation will close. Revelation 22 will be fulfilled and there will be people that are still alive on the other side of the just shall, I mean, the just will be just still and the filthy will be filthy still. There are going to be people that are alive on the other side. And it's not because you and I have suddenly gotten good enough that we can do this on our own. It's because Jesus has always been good enough. And that what he's wanting us to do is walk with him like Enoch walked with him. Walk with him like Jesus walked with his Father. He is wanting us to have that same experience. He's waiting for a people for that day. And that's why he hasn't come. It's not because the world's not bad enough. It's because his people are not ready enough. And thank you for taking me back to Revelation 3. That's why that message of the faithful witness is so important to us. Would you slip back there, please, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Folks, we've believed this for a long time. We've read Ellen White's quotations where she said, you know, what, what God's people need to be ready and need to be prepared for in, in all of this. But we have a tendency to... You know, yeah, I kind of downplay that, and it's just kind of like, you know, it's, it's, and, and we use the illustration, it's a very valid illustration to a point. A very valid illustration of talking about we grow and we grow and we grow, and at that point, we, we're that whatever. But we need to understand that this is serious, that God is talking about us reaching the point where we no longer have an opportunity to grow because the growing time has passed. The growing time is past. We must be fully surrendered to Christ. But we can never get in the point. You're not going to come up to your neighbor and say, Hi, neighbor, I want you to know I finally reached it. I'm there, and we're good. I know you'll get there pretty soon. Uh-uh, there's none of that. Remember, when we get on the other side of the close of probation, we're going to go through the time of Jacob's trouble, Right? What does Ellen White describe the time of Jacob's trouble? The worst time we've ever had. Because we're going to look at our lives and we're going to say, is there anything there? And our fear, our great fear, is not that the rock is going to fall on us. It's that we're not going to have a sin forgiven. But we're not going to be able to remember it. Why? Because we've surrendered it all to Jesus Christ. We are fully walking with Him. How could Enoch walk into heaven? Did he walk in there only partially grown? Or was it because he had reached a point in his life where he had so connected with Christ that Jesus said, come on in. That's exactly where he was. It was because of Christ by faith. Enoch was not saved by his works. He was saved by faith. It had to be. Jesus hadn't died yet. There was no forgiveness except by faith. And you know what? There's no forgiveness except by faith today. Amen. Jesus is our power. He is the one. In Revelation chapter 3, just to remind you, we looked at this yesterday, and we said earlier, right at the beginning of this section, talking about what is the 1888 message. Ellen White says that the message that they were preaching is the message of the Laodicean message. Are you catching this? 
The reason this is good news is because Jesus is good news. He is the faithful witness spoken of in verse 14. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. Verse 15, he looks at us. He's telling you what you're like. He's telling me what I'm like. It's pointing to me. He's the faithful witness. He sees what you're like. And he says, now what I want you to do is I want you to accept my remedies. My remedies are in verse 17. I say to you, no, that's not it. He said, that's part of the problem. Verse 18, I counsel to you by gold refined in the fire. That is faith. What is this faith? It's the faith in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. It's the faith of Jesus. He says, buy it of me. In other words, where do we get it? We get it from Jesus. We don't get enough good faith. We haven't had just enough good experiences. Now we're strong enough to do it. We get the faith from Jesus because it is Jesus' faith. It is the faith that he won the victory with. A.T. Jones that we just read. That you may be rich and, um, okay, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your white nakedness may not be revealed. He brings to us his character. That's the robe he puts on us, not my character. Anything in my character, anything there is that nasty something that's always there. It's why Ellen White said there's nothing woven in that robe of human merit, of human value, of human anything. It's all of Christ. It's Christ's robe. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may be able to see. The Lord needs us to open our eyes so that we can see the truth. The truth has been here all along. It's been right here. The plea of Christ to come to him and to be fully surrendered to him. That's what the book of Romans is all about. Go to Romans chapter 5 and see what it says about what he was trying to share with us and what he was trying to give to us. So if we continue in Revelation 3, we see that Christ stands with our Nazis. It's the message we see in pictures and the stories that we hear from kids. So to your point, Christ coming in. But I see pretty throughout the Bible that we can have victory over sin. Now, now once again, that doesn't mean we are perfect. That means that we can have victory over sin from some point. Am I incorrect in that understanding? In, okay, keeping in mind that it's always Christ. The victory, the overcoming, is always in Christ. But the reason that we are still here, and I'm saying that with my understanding, the reason we are still here is because God has not found His people ready to accept the fullness of His power in their lives. And He's wanting to do that, and He's waiting for us. Absolutely. 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 Walking with Christ. Which is what Ellen White says, abundantly, abundantly. All right. Now you said you had a lot of questions. Oh, I can keep <laughs> Okay, I know. All right. Let me let me do this. Let me do this. I better do this so that I can somewhat close on time here. I knew. <laughs> Don't make me answer that question. <laughs> I know it was a very good question, folks. There is, there, is no, there is no question in my mind, and food is not my issue. I want you to know that. This is the journey your Michigan conference is on. 
This is the journey your church is on right now. You heard what Elder Mitchell said last night, if you heard his message. This message is what, that's why Clinton Walleen came to us. The material I've shared here is what we have been studying as well. I, I don't read it any different than you read it. It's plain English. This is what we've been talking about. This is what we've been praying about. What we want now is for our church family in Michigan to be part of this discussion, part of this growth experience. We need to go back to our churches and get serious about studying with him you and, uh, and studying with each other and learning the truth that is, is in here. Let's be careful, folks, because the devil is going to try to take us all down all kinds of roads. He's going to try to tell us to go to this group or that group and get our information. We need to get our truth from the Word of God and from the spirit of prophecy and from those original sources. God will help us. He will not allow us to make a mistake again if we stay with Him. But if we're not careful, we'll go down that same road and we'll go over it and over it and over it and over it again just like Olson said in his, in his message. Are you and I ready that we don't want to keep walking that road? Aren't you tired of coming over that same road again and again? Aren't you and I, aren't you ready now to walk down the road that Christ has been trying to get us to go down? And he's right there to take us down that road. He's going to be the one who's with us on that road. We have nothing to give. It's all in Christ. Let me share my last slide with you today. I wish we could answer all the questions. And I know that there are going to be questions. I've given you my email address. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I, I want you to know that I'm happy to do everything I can to communicate with you and share the answers with you as I'm able. But I want you to know that I'm on this journey with you. I've been on this journey for 40 years. We're not done yet. God is helping us. I have so much more I'd like to talk to you about, and really, there just isn't time. I, um, I'd like to hand out a lot of different things to you that I think that we just need to wait until the time is right to be able to get all that together. But you go back to your churches, and you are now on the same page with us as our pastors are on. Now, let me explain something to you. I want you to know that your pastor is also learning, all right? The pastor, I'm just learning, you're learning, the pastor's learning. When you go back and you have the conversation, remember this is an ongoing conversation. We're going back to the sources to get what Christ wants us to know and understand. But if we go back to the original sources, we can never go wrong. But if we go try to do it through all kinds of other avenues, one of the reasons you can understand, I mean, you can trust Duffield's material is because he keeps going back to the original sources and he stays with them and he just hammers it and he stays with it. I Like I told you early in the class, I don't know how he's gone through all that material, but he has had the most exhaustive study of anybody that I know of and that's why we're able to see what he's able to give. But this is not Duffield. This is Jesus trying to get us back to the source. Go back to the sources and you'll find what Christ wants. But the last stanza of our song that we've had as our theme song said that it is time for us to open our mouths and to speak. It is time for us to speak. And what shall we say? 
This is the very work which the Lord designs that the message he has given his servants shall perform in the heart and the mind of every human agent. It is the perpetual life of the church of the love church of the church to love God supremely and to love others as they love themselves. There was but little love for God or man, and God gave his messengers just what the people needed. Those who received the message were greatly blessed, for they saw the bright rays of the sun of righteousness, and life and hope sprang up in their hearts. They were beholding Christ. Fear not is his everlasting assurance. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Because I live, ye shall live also. The blood of the spotless Lamb of God, the believers apply to their own heart. Looking upon the great antitype, we can say, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ is our righteousness, period. One last word of caution. All that I have told you in relationship to the battle and the struggle that we're in is just as real as you're sitting in this room. I don't have time to tell you, but even in the recent past, and I'm talking very recent past, we are seeing evidence that there is going to be a struggle in relationship to understanding this message as we come back to it again. But God's going to help us because the battle is fought on our knees. The battle is fought not by our words, but by Jesus Christ fighting it for us. You and I must be surrendered to him. We must be following in his footsteps. And he will finish the work because he's promised that he will. He's bringing the latter rain back to us. I believe he's doing it now, just as surely as he did it in 1888. I believe he's doing it in 2018. He is doing it. I'm not trying to overstate that, but I'm telling you this message came with the latter rain, and if it's coming back again, then the latter rain must be coming again. It does not come instantly. Ellen White made that clear. It's going to be part of the journey. It's going to be the Laodicean message. The Laodicean messenger, the faithful witness, is going to work you over. He's working me over. But he does it in love. And he's going to prepare your heart to accept the fullness of what he's doing for you and me. How many of you want to commit yourself, first of all, to Jesus Christ? And secondly to continuing this study journey and developing this walk with him that's been laid out here that we've been talking about. Not my material, but the material that's available in the Word of God and the Spirit of Prophecy. I'd like to pray for you. Let's bow our heads. Loving Father in Heaven, how merciful you are to us. We've studied a lot during this week. Thank you for the material that you've given to us. It's not about me, and it's not about anyone in this room. It is all about Christ, our righteousness. It is about righteousness that comes by faith, and that faith comes only from Jesus. Father in heaven, we pray that you will take this and continue to grow in our hearts. 
There will be struggles along the way. We've got questions that we don't have answers for and that you will promise that you will give them to us when we need them. But I pray that you will continue to take us on our journey with you as we walk with you moment by moment. We pray that you will help us over every hurdle. Thank you for Jesus who makes it all possible. In whose name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.